Thank you for listening to the Murray Hills Church podcast. We're in a series right now called Anchored Spirituality. It's an emotional health series, and we're going to be looking at six different principles to help us improve our emotional and spiritual health. I hope you find this helpful, and I hope we learn something together. We're in a series right now called Anchored Spirituality, and uh, it's we're, we're talking about things that help us stay anchored emotionally and spiritually, and it's an acronym. Anchor is an acronym, so we've been working through authentic faith, nurtured rest, courageous candor, uh, humble attitude, and today we're uh, on O, we're talking about open to feedback. And I'm going to start with a little poll, all right? I'm going to give you the two questions before you answer, so you got just a little bit of time to think about it. They're not hard questions, though. Uh, for those of you that are old enough, how many of you, don't show hands yet, but how many of you taught your kids how to drive? Like you were the, you were the primary teacher that sat in the passenger seat and instructed your kids how to drive, and how many of you uh, hired it out? Like you sent them to driving school, you, you, you paid an instructor, you tricked your, your dad into doing it or something. But uh, so how many, show of hands now, how many of you taught at least one of your kids how to drive? How many? A lot of folks in the room. Okay, good. And uh, how many of you hired it out? You sent them to driving school. Okay, Amy and Mansell. Is that it? Okay. Um, no offense to the first group because I'm one of you. But Amy and Mansell are the two smartest people in this room right now. Um, because I, I taught my oldest daughter, Lily, how to drive. And it, there's no feeling of more helplessness and being out of control than just sitting in the passenger seat dreaming about those driving instructors that supposedly have a brake on the passenger side. I mean, it's like you can't reach the brake, you can't reach the gas, you can reach the steering wheel, but it's probably a really bad idea to, drive, to grab it. The only thing you can do when you're teaching your kid how to drive is sit in the passenger seat and yell at them, which is what I did, which is, you know, like, stop, what are you doing? No, you can't take that curve too fast. No, you've got to turn your blinker on. Stop, no, can't you see? No, you're going too fast. No, don't do this. That, that's all you can do when you're teaching a kid how to drive. And it's like, I've, it's been seven years, I guess, since I taught Lily how to drive, and I've still got a little PTSD uh, from the whole experience. And it's not because she's a bad driver at all. She's a better driver than I am. It's because she was 15. Like five years earlier, she was in elementary school, and now I'm teaching her how to drive a vehicle. And uh, so when Hallie, when it came time to teach Hallie, we learned our lesson, and we hired somebody. We hired John Kodat to teach Hallie how to drive. And uh, I mean, that was, and that was the best thing we did. I promise you we will hire somebody to teach Roman how to drive. I promise. We're taking applications now. Four years. Four years away. No way. You know, but yeah, we're, we're, if you're interested, you know, please apply. You will have to sign a release. Uh, but John Kodak did something with Hallie that I didn't even think to do with Lily. And that was he immediately took her on the interstate. And I, I'm like, I didn't, I, there was no way I was going to take Lily on the interstate. But John, like the, the first week of driving school, she's driving on the interstate. And I wish I'd have done that because when Lily decided to go to school in Birmingham, it's two and a half hours down the interstate. And I think maybe just a handful of times she'd driven on the interstate by herself. And so as a dad, you know, I got to explain, you know, so I start trying to coach and tell all, you know, like when you're driving on two-lane highway, 
you know, don't, don't go too fast because it's easy to get fast on the interstate. You don't realize how fast you're going. But don't go too slow because you will get run over if you go too slow. And especially don't go too slow in the left lane. People are going to get mad. And don't, you know, be aware of your surroundings. And, and you know, you got to practice defensive driving. And the most important thing is you have to check your blind spots. Because there is a point in which if you're in the right lane and you're thinking about getting over in that left lane... You, the mirror, you can't just trust the mirror because you can look in the rearview mirror and there's not a car there and you can look in the side view mirror and there's not a car there but there can be a car just perfectly positioned just right in the spot where they're in your blind spot and if you don't glance around and look and make sure there's no car there, you end up in a wreck. Now, every bit of that is true not only of driving on the interstate but of our emotional health and our spiritual health. There are things in our lives that we can't see and if we're not self-aware enough to check the blind spot, like to, to, to just turn around and take a quick glance, if we're not self-aware enough to do that, then we could end up in a wreck because they're right there out of view. A blind spot is very simply, this is uh, Doug Stone and Sheila Heen. They wrote a book called Thanks for the Feedback. They define blind spot in this way, something we don't see about ourselves but others do. I mean, that's something we don't see about ourselves, but others do. It could be sin in our lives. Last week we talked about ego, and that's a classic blind spot, right? It's hard. No, nobody says, oh, yeah, I'm a narcissist. I got a huge ego. Nobody says that about themselves. But we see it in other people. And so that's a classic blind spot. It could be uh, sins like envy, uh, greed. Very rarely do people say, oh, yeah, I'm really greedy. You know, um, prejudice is a classic blind spot. Everybody says, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. And as soon as they say that, you know they're getting ready to say something racist. Um, the, another one would be like emotions. So we would say, well, I'm, I'm not angry all the time. What are you I'm not an angry person. And other people say, oh, yes, you absolutely are angry. Or I'm, I'm, but I'm not anxious. I'm not overly worried and anxious. And other people say, oh, no, no, you absolutely are. Uh, or another one would just be behaviors. Just like, well, I don't look at my phone all the time. Not all the time. I mean, I look at it, but not all the time. And other people in our lives would say, oh, no, you, you do look at it all the time. Or, but I'm not, you know, I'm not an overly critical person. I'm generally happy and pleasant to be around. And other people go, mm, yeah, right. Um, that's the deal with blind spots. We can't see them. And so we honestly, uh, we don't, uh, I should back up and say it this way. We don't have an honest assessment of ourselves because we don't see ourselves in the same way that other people. So sometimes it's, it's so obvious to us, to other people, but we, we just can't, we can't see it. And the deal with blind spots is what's different with an emotional blind spot or a spiritual blind spot as compared to like driving on the interstate is sometimes it's not as simple as just glancing around and taking a look. We need help from other people to see it. Like we need, if, if, if by definition, that's the way this would work. If a blind spot is something that is in my life, but I can't see it and you can, then by definition, I need your help to see what I can't. And that's scary and, uh, and dangerous and something we typically resist. So if somebody, and we've had those conversations before, Amy talked about two weeks ago having difficult conversations. Well, if somebody's ever had a difficult conversation with us, we generally don't respond to it very well. So if somebody says, you know, hey, you got, 
you got to watch that. Like, do you see what you're doing? You see how much you're working right now? Or you see how much time you're spending on your phone? Or you see the way you're talking to your wife? Or, I mean, you see the way you're treating your kids? You see what kind of pressure you're putting on them? Or you see how this sin is affecting your relationship? Do you know how much you're drinking right now? I mean, have you, I mean, like, anybody's ever had those difficult conversations with us, we do not respond well to that. We get defensive. We get upset. We get angry. How dare they? But look at, we start pointing out their problems and their faults. We just don't handle it very well. But if we're going to keep growing spiritually, we've got to be able to find a way to receive feedback. That's why open to feedback is a part of it. And the Bible, there's tons of stuff in the Bible. I mean, in the New Testament, it talks about restoring a brother gently. Like, there there are times in which we have to give feedback, but there are also times in which we need to receive feedback. And I'm going to share a classic example, a story uh, from the Old Testament about that. And uh, it's one that many of you are familiar with. It's the story of Nathan and David. It's in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. So if you, if you got a Bible with you, I'm just going to use the screen. Second Samuel chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going I'm to back up and give you the backstory. So if you, if you are familiar with the backstory, just listen to it a second time. But if you're not, just listen to it the first time. So uh, David, this, this story set when David is king of Israel. And uh, David is, is probably at the height of his power at this particular point. But he has sent his army off, and they're fighting battles in a distant land. But David stays home. And one morning or afternoon, I can't remember which one it was, but, but one day David is on his roof, and he sees a woman bathing. And her name's Bathsheba. And he decides he wants her. And so he sends his messengers to go get her, and they go get Bathsheba and bring, him, bring her to David. And uh, she sleeps with him. And there's, she's another man's wife, Uriah is her husband, and so there, there's an adultery component to this, but it's, it's much deeper than that, because David's the king. It didn't say that the messengers asked her if she would like to come, uh, the messengers went and got her and brought her to David. He's the king, he's in a position of authority and power, and so she likely couldn't refuse him. But she goes back to her house, uh, she becomes pregnant, and she comes or sends messengers and tells David that she's pregnant. And so David devises a plan to cover the whole thing up. And he uh, calls Uriah, her husband, back home and entertains him for a little while. And his whole plan is, I'm going to get Uriah back home. He's going to go home. He's going to sleep with his wife. He'll think the baby's his. Problem solved. Only Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps outside the door of David's palace. He's so committed to his, to his role as you know, servant in David's army that he, he sleeps outside of David's palace. So David tries again, and this time he gets him drunk. And he's like, and this is all in the Bible. This is crazy. He's like, if I can just get him drunk, then I'll trick him into sleeping with his wife. And so he gets him drunk. Uriah still doesn't do it. He doesn't go home and sleep with his wife. And so David says, I'll kill him. I mean, think how quickly that escalated. And David tells Joab, his, his commander, the next time you go into battle, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines, and as the enemy advances, I want all of our army to fall back so that Uriah will fall. And he does, and Uriah is killed. And uh, Bathsheba comes and becomes the wife of David, and they have a son together. Now, David apparently thinks nothing's wrong with this. I mean, if you think about it, this is like a huge blind spot. Like, as you listen to the story and you watch it, you're like, how could David think nothing's wrong with this? I mean, good, this is so blatantly obvious, but here, that's the point with blind spots. What is blatantly obvious to us on the outside looking in is not always blatantly obvious to the person that's in the middle of it. 
And, and David's in the middle of this thing. And I, I mean, I think when you look at the pregnancy, he, he was thinking that was wrong because he was trying to hide and cover that up. But the murder, you know what he says in 2 Samuel, uh, I think it's 11 before I get to that point. Yeah, you know what he says in 2 Samuel 11? He says, tell Joab not to be upset about this. This happens. This is war. This is just, it, it happens. One man dies by the sword as well as another. I mean, Dave, this is a monster blind spot for David. He cannot see what his actions have done. And so God sends somebody else in his life to confront him on this. And that's the story I wanted to read to you. Uh, this is, uh, says the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan did something genius. Since we can't see, we can see other people's blind spots easily, but we can't see our own. So Nathan told him a story about somebody else. And he said there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. And he raised it, and he grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David can, can clearly see right and wrong in this situation. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I don't know if he said that in frustration. I don't know if he said that in anger. I don't know if he said that with a raised voice. I don't know if he said that out of exasperation. I don't know if he said that with compassion and pity. But he tells David, you're the man. The story is about you. You don't see it. You're the man. This is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Now, as you read this story, it's one of those, it, we're kinda, we kind of get ourselves in the position of David as we read the story. Because we read David's story and think, how could you not see it? Like, how, it's so obvious. It's right there. How could you not see the sin in your camp? I mean, you are clearly the man in the story. The wrongs are yours. Can you not see it? And the answer is, no, you can't. Because it, when it comes to blind spots, it's, it's way easier to see them in other people than it is in ourselves. And there's a reason for that. And I want to share a couple of things that... that uh, Stone and, and Heen talk about in their research in that book. They, they talk about there's three different amplifiers that we have that amplify our blind spots. And you can see these somewhat in the story of David. I, I know for sure you can see them in the story of your life. But they're things that make our blind spots even bigger than they would normally be. And uh, here they are. Number one is emotional math. What that is is we discount our emotions. We double while other people double them. So we discount our emotional response, other people double 
our emotional response. So I would say, well, I, I didn't really lose my cool back there. I mean, a, a little. I, I mean, I probably got a little upset. I may have raised my voice a little bit, but not bad. I mean, it was not, it was not bad. And other people are like, oh, no, it was, it was really, really, really bad. That's because we say, but that's not who I am. So we discount when we lose it or when we get really anxious, whatever emotion we're feeling, we discount it and other people double it. I heard one preacher say wisely, you know, uh, sometimes your whispers are shouts to other people. Feels like a whisper to you, feels like a shout to them. So emotional math is one of the amplifiers. The other one's uh, attribution. So we attribute our failure to the situation while others attribute to character. So we would say, yeah, I lost my cool back there, but... I mean, wouldn't anybody, I mean, that was a tense situation. That was, I mean, come on. I mean, that was a, I think anybody would probably respond in the same way I did because that's not normally who I am. That's not within my character. It was the situation that caused me to act like that, not, not, not my character. But that's not the way we see it with other people. So um, if I take the last piece of cake at a birthday party, you may say, well, he's really selfish, character, and I may say, well, it sat there for 30 minutes and nobody was taking it, so I didn't think anybody wanted it. Situation. Or if I'm late for an important meeting, which has never happened, but if I am ever late for an important meeting, you may say, he's irresponsible. Character. And I would say, yeah, but I was, Roman was running late for school and I was trying to get, it, get him all together and then we got behind traffic. And I, situation. So that amplifies our blind spot because it's all situation to us and it's character to others but here's the big one for me is intent we judge ourselves by our intent while others judge us by the impact so so we judge our actions based on our intent i didn't mean for that to happen i didn't that wasn't my intent um but others judge our actions based upon their impact upon us. So when we do something that negatively affects another person, they don't say, well, yeah, it hurt, and I was wrong by that, and it was definitely wrong for you to do that, but you didn't mean to, so we're all good. We, no, it, we, we judge it based upon the impact. And, and the best example I can give for this one is, is another softball analogy, and I, I realize I've done a lot of this lately, but it's softball season and I'm in the middle of it, so y'all just got to hang with me. It all runs together. But my best example here is, you know, occasionally, sometimes, I will yell at a player. Occasionally. It's not often. I, I try not to yell, okay? And I try not to make um, girls cry, but sometimes that happens, all right? That, it does. But I would say, that wasn't my intent. It wasn't my intent to get you upset. That was not what, no, 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 no. My, my, I, was, I was trying to push you. I was trying to encourage you. Know, like, I see something good in you, and I was trying to push you. And that was, it was not my intent to get you upset. It was my intent to make you better. And, but that's not the way it feels when you're in the moment, right? And, and the only way you can really know that and this is true of coaching. This is true if you're running a company, if, you're, if you have people that work for you, report to you uh, in your position, or if you're in an administrative position in a school system or whatever. You better have somebody in your life that can say, hey, I know that wasn't your intent, but that was the outcome. <laughs> like somebody in your life, that, like, that, like a Nathan, that can point it out and say, hey, can I give you a little feedback here? Uh, you were being a little hard on them right there. Or you, you did get a little loud right there. Or that you did kind of, you crossed a little bit of a line right there. I mean, you've got to have somebody. Like, we, we've actually had these conversations uh, in our coaching staff about this 
Like, you're going to have, we, and we tell each other, you're going to have to call me out. Like, sometimes, especially if it's your own kid playing, and my, one of my kids is not playing anymore. So, but when it's your own kid playing, I mean, it's, you, it's easy. You don't realize how hard you're being on your own kid versus other kids. And um, we just said, you know, like, we had a conversation last night because we debriefed. We have debrief after every game. There's like a phone call after every game. And, and we were debriefing after the game, and it was like, hey, you got any feedback for me? You got anything I need to do different? Any constructive criticism that you can give me? And that's a healthy conversation because we can't always see it. And we sit there and say, yeah, here's some things we can do differently. You might want to do this differently. But um, that's what we need in our lives. We have to learn how to invite feedback. The scariest question you can ask a friend, especially the better you know them or the better they know you, is, um, well, can you give me some feedback on that? We don't like asking that question. We don't want to invite feedback because we're scared of what we're going to hear when we invite feedback. And I think when you look at David's story, what's interesting about it to me is that he didn't invite the feedback, but he did receive it in the right way. So for all his faults, all through this story, that David's got all of these faults, but when Nathan confronted him, I didn't finish the story, when Nathan confronted him, David didn't get defensive. When Nathan said, you are the man. Now, you imagine being in that situation. You get righteous uh, indignation about something that somebody else is doing, and they flip it around and say, but that's you. That's what you did. Don't you see that? You did that to Uriah. You did that to Bathsheba. And David did not get defensive. He got repentant. This is what the very next verse says, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So there was immediate repentance on David's part. There was immediate forgiveness on the Lord's part. But what I think is so important to us is that if, if we can learn how to do this, this will be an absolute game changer. I've not learned how to do it yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach it. So, but I've not learned how to do it yet. But if we can learn how, when we receive feedback, that our immediate default reaction is not defensiveness and argument and pointing out their how wrong you are to say that about us, but our immediate response is just to at least get a little curious about why they think that about us. And this is, this is super hard, right? But if, but if we can, because you can't get to repentance without first being open to the acknowledgement that you were in the wrong. There's no way to get to repentance. As long as defensiveness blocks all repentance. And if you can't get to repentance, then you can't get to change. So the reason some of the sins are so persistent in our lives and they just keep staying in there, keep staying in there, keep staying there is because some people have pointed them out to us. We've married to some of those folks or we raised some of those folks or we're best friends with some of those folks. Some people have pointed those faults out to us, but we keep getting defensive. And because we're defensive, we'll never get repentant. And if we'll never get repentant, then we'll never change. So we have to learn how to, as, as the Bible puts it, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We usually reverse that when somebody gives us feedback. We're quick to anger, we're quick to speak, and we're slow to listen. We have to revert, like the Bible actually knows what, James knows what he's talking about. All right? he went, so if we could learn that simple practice, that when somebody gives us feedback, whether we invited it or not, I know that it's, it's even harder to do this when we didn't invite it. <laughs> okay? But if, if somebody gives us feedback, if we could learn to be quick to listen, which means stop, before we react, stop, and just get curious about what they're saying. I mean, Amy talked about this in her message, um, listen in a way to understand. We usually listen in a way to respond, but listen in a way to understand. And uh, Heen and, and Stone talk about it in their book. It's, it's a fantastic approach. I don't think I have a slide for it, no. 
Um, they said, if you could shift your mindset to from you're wrong to tell me more, that that would be the game changer. That if you receive feedback, somebody's having a difficult conversation with you, whether you invited it or not, um, if, if your default reaction wasn't, you're wrong, but, well, tell me more. Why, why do you feel this way about me? What am I doing that's making that? And at the end of the day, you may not agree with them. Like, I mean, you may accept the feedback that the, not, everybody who gives us feedback is not always right. Okay, so you may hear the feedback and accept it and process it, but then you're not reacting out of emotion to it, but you're reacting out of ration and reason to it and go, okay, I've heard that and I understand what you're trying to say. I disagree for these reasons. Or you may say, I've heard that and I understand what you're trying to say and you're right. That's something I need to work on. It takes a lot of humility to do that. But if we could shift from defensiveness to curiosity, it solves a whole lot of those problems, which is just a way of, you know, like, instead of saying you're wrong, our default reaction is, well, tell me more. And one of the other things I'll mention real quick, we're about to wrap up, but one of the other things, if we, we may need another person to sound it off of. Sometimes that helps. I mean, I do this with, with my wife a lot, but you know, if somebody gives me some feedback, my initial reaction is to get defensive and to push back against it, and I don't want to hear it. And then I go home and start thinking about it and go, hmm, maybe there's a little, little bit of truth there. And you start thinking about it some more, and you know, like, what is it? The Holy Spirit starts kind of working and convicting us of some of those things. And uh, you may ask somebody else, and you're like, listen, so and so talked to me today, and they were upset because I reacted in this way. And were they right? I mean, what do you think? And that opens a door for another person. They may not have said that before because they knew it was going to upset you and they were going to catch the brunt of the defensiveness. But now that you, were they right? And a lot of times, folks that know you well and are close to you will say, yeah. I mean, they'll do it in a way that they got your back. They won't usually throw you under the bus, but you know, you know I'm, you've had those conversations when they go, yeah, yeah, you do, you do that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's, some, that's something you might want to work on. Um, it, it's very, very difficult to do, and it takes, it takes a lot of humility, and it takes a lot of courage, but in order to grow spiritually, we've got to have that. And it's all throughout the Bible. You can read it all throughout the Bible. There's a famous story of Paul confronting Peter in uh, the book of Galatians. There's all kinds of stories about this, about the Bible. Uh, and it will come up at multiple points in our lives. We will be confronted with feedback about ourselves. And we have to learn how to accept it in the right way. So let's pray for that. And uh, I'll tell you what next week's topic is going to be. So let's, let's pray for that. Father, I pray that you help us to... Um, to have the right kind of response when, when we hear things about ourselves that we don't want to hear or when people point out our blind spots. Um, we, we are usually very defensive about that. And I don't know, our, our pride's at stake or our ego's at stake. In some cases, our reputation is at stake. And, and we just don't want to admit that thing about, our, about ourselves to ourselves. But uh, the irony is everybody else already realizes it. So the, the quicker that we realize it, the better off we're going to be because we're the only one that's still in the dark a lot of times. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to have the humility to do that, uh, have the humility to repent. Um, a, a repentant heart is something you desire, and so when there is sin in our lives, help us to have the humility to repent of that sin, to change and to turn around. Uh, when there's you know, broken patterns or behaviors in our lives that don't need to be there, 
Help us to have the humility to repent of those things and turn around. And most of all, God, we ask you to help us do this because on our own, we have a sinful nature that pushes against this, but we, we have spirit that lives in us and we help ask that your spirit help us in this endeavor. Um, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.